Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The exhibition American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith, examines the development of U.S. democratic systems as well as the current impact on everyday life. The traveling exhibition from the Smithsonian is on view now at the Atlanta History Center's Buckhead campus. And later this hour, we'll hear about this show from Michael Rose, the Atlanta History Center's chief mission officer. Also, a celebration of fall foliage with the photos of Fernbank Forest by Peter Essek. First, the legendary five-time Grammy Award-winning gospel group Blind Boys of Alabama will perform at Eddie's Attic on November 30th. The group has been singing together since 1939, and they have no plans to stop anytime soon. Two members of the group join me now via Zoom, singer Ricky McKinney and musical director Joey Williams. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thank you. Now, the lineup of the group has changed over the years, but one of the founding members, Jimmy Carter, remains. I was hoping each of you would tell us how you became involved with the Blind Boys. Ricky, how did you first become involved with the group? Well, you know, my history with the Blind Boys of Alabama goes all the way back to when I was about four years old. My mother, Sarah McKinney, she was a gospel singer, and she sometimes had the opportunity to be on program with the Blind Boys. So I had an opportunity to meet Clarence. And as time went on, I grew up and I would go out and work with the Blind Boys during the, the early 70s. And as fate would have it, in the 80s, Clarence called me up and he said, Ricky, what are you doing? I said, I was working with over to the Greater Mount Calvary Baptist Church. He uh, asked me to come and go. And I went out with the Blind Boys and in 1989. and here I am today, and I had opportunity to manage the group for a moment. And I was a musician with the Blind Boys, and it gave me an opportunity to do some singing. So here I am now with the Blind Boys of Alabama. Ah, the rest is history. And Joey, your dates couldn't possibly go back as far as Ricky's. How did you come on board with the Blind Boys? Well, I, I knew about the Blind Boys growing up, and I did have the opportunity to um, play with Clarence Fountain back in the 70s when he was doing his solo. He would always put together a band or something, and uh, one or two times I was able to play with him, and that was I was a young, young boy then. I was maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something like that. Mm, you're talking really young. Yeah, so I, um, my father... And my mother, they always have gospel music going on, and it was 90% quartet. So I knew of them. 
And then I got with other groups, you know, quartet groups, because I stayed in the business and I was out in California with one of the other gospel groups and we were all on the same show. And their tour manager came to me and said, we need a guitarist. And could you find us um, guitarists that would like to travel and, you know, that can sing and, and do everything? So I said, yes, I'll, I'll see if I can find you somebody because I was with this other group at that time. So I went out and I did some research on the boys as I was looking and I came back to them, long story short, and said, I found you someone. And that was back in 92. <laughs> I've been here ever since. Fantastic. Ricky, I read something beautiful you once said in an interview. Our disability doesn't have to be a handicap. It's not about what you can't do. It's about what you do. And what we do is sing good gospel music. How does your music and your attitude help illustrate the importance of looking past someone's differences? You know, when I think about being without sight, my aunt told me once a long time ago, she said, Ricky, you're not blind, you just can't see. I lost my sight, but I didn't lose my direction. Mm. And I've always said to people that I've always been a dreamer. If you can dream the dream, do the work and keep the faith, things usually work out. But the main thing I can tell you today that, that I try to let people know so you won't get despondent, so you won't lose your way of uh, a disability is just a limitation. And we all have limitations. You have to realize that. But I found out the main thing I found out that keeps me going it's just because you're not the choice doesn't mean you don't have the ability. What your aunt told you was so profound. It makes me think about when you all sing Amazing Grace and come to the lyric, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Does that lyric resonate with you differently or in a special way? When you have God in your life and when you are well-directed, you realize that, not trying to be over-religious, but Jesus is the light of the world. And we are all walking in the light. So as long as you know, no matter where you are, you don't have to be blind. You, no matter what your situation know, you know, that you're walking in the light. And, and I've always had that, that thing about me. I, I've always been like that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the rich like me. I once was into light and that's that's what carries me somebody told me one time i was saying that the lord will make a way he said no let me tell you the way has already been made we just got to walk in it right and it's just like starting anew it's you know when you when you found the lord when you come to the lord and when you really know where you are and you feel it is like being born again so that's like i was blind but now i see you know, I was lost, but now I'm found. You know, you found the Lord. You know, you found your way. You know, that's what it kind of means to me. And do you think that's why that message is also why even those who may not be religious find gospel music accessible and so beautiful? I think so, because, see, thing about gospel music, it makes you feel good. Anything <laughs> <laughs> that makes you feel good got to be all right. <laughs> yes. Got to be all right. We go places where they don't understand one word we're saying, not one. 
but they can feel it from the stage. They can feel what we're saying without knowing exactly what we're saying and without speaking the language. So that's what gospel music uh, brings, and it brings, and we bring it around the world. Yes, you have traveled the world and gained fans throughout the world. You all recently released a new single with Bella Fleck. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Would you tell us about this famous song by Nina Simone and why you wanted to cover it now? Well, you know, that song just resonates to us about, you know, people are going through something and the world is, is seem like it's in a world of confusion sometimes, but if you just think about that, you know, no matter what the situation is, it's always something. I wish I could break all the chains, She was saying with Nina Simone back how she was feeling back then, nobody was feeling free. And that she was asking, she wished she knew how it would feel to be free. And there are people still today that are feeling the same way 50 years later, however long it's been since then, and they're still feeling that way. So we think now is a great time to, to put the song out for somebody to hear that message because somebody needs to hear it now as well as then. So um, as we were singing it and as we were doing it in the studio, something came over the studio and we felt it was more necessary than when it first came to us. And as we were singing it, it got more and more relevant as we were singing. So I think now is the time because like I said, a lot of people are going, are still feeling that way right now. Mm, so tragic considering she recorded that version in 1967 for her album, Silk and Soul. Speaking of the albums, what was it like working with Bella Fleck? <laughs> this guy is a, a musical uh, genius. This guy, um, his playing is phenomenal, and he arranged it, you know, and he actually had it arranged when he got to us for the most part, you know, his music, and he said, well, why don't we do just vocals and banjo, which is something we've never done before. And of course we approached it, you know, with some apprehension, but then we got to it and with the harmonies and Ricky and Jimmy did the lead verses on there and Bella did the solo, banjo solo, which was phenomenal. And I tell you, when it all came together, it was really, really fun. Even down to the hand claps, we all got together and stood around the mic and did hand claps to it. So it, we, yeah, we, we enjoyed it. We had a good time doing it. Fantastic. Ricky, other legendary musicians performed with Outside. Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Ronnie Millsap come to mind, Andrea Bocelli. Do you think people who are blind have a heightened awareness of sound or pitch that is advantageous for performing music? Well, you know, I feel like everybody has a purpose. Being without sight is just a situation that happens, but it sometimes it enhances your ability to play and Sometimes if you just don't have it, you just don't have it. But uh, I started out playing drums and I played drums for, for a long time. But I, I realized that the main thing about all of this, the blind people and the sighted people coming together, 
the main thing that made all that happen, they, they had the ability. See, they, a lot of times you have the ability, but you got to learn that people need people and working together works. And that's what made it all happen. Them having the ability and somebody taking out the time. This is how it comes together. Now, Ricky, although you are part of the group Blind Boys of Alabama, you were raised right here in Atlanta. You all will be performing at Eddie's Attic. What's it like to perform back home? Is there a different vibe? Well, it's always good to come home. It's always, there's no place like home. And and we've played in Eddie's Attic before, and it's just good to, to, to have your friends to come out and it's good to be respected here in your own hometown. I am so proud of being a part of Atlanta. The Atlanta Braves, they won the World Series the other day. And I had an opportunity back in 2005 to sing on the Atlanta anthem. It was produced by Dallas Austin and, and Mayor uh, Shirley Franklin. She had asked him to do it. And I had an opportunity to sing on that song. And, and it's just good to know that if people, there's somebody in your city that thinks something of you. My, my history goes way back, as you know, the late Mayor Maynard Jackson proclaimed May the 10th to be Ricky McKinney Day in 1975. I'm happy to be home. I love Atlanta. I love the people. And, uh, and we're going to have a great time. We are. Uh, Ricky McKinney, Joey Williams, it's a joy and a privilege to talk with you both. Thanks so very much. Oh, thank you for having us. It's so wonderful to hear your voice again, and it's so wonderful to be back on your program. So just know that um, through it all, hey, you got a friend. Ricky McKinney and Jerry Williams, members of the Grammy Award-winning gospel group, The Blind Boys of Alabama. They are performing at Eddie's Attic on November 30th at 7 p.m. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll celebrate the gorgeous colors of fall foliage and listen back to my interview with the Atlanta-based photographer Peter Essick. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Fall is in the air, and brilliant fall colors surround us outdoors. Atlanta is known as the city in the forest due to its vast vegetation and tree coverage. Fernbank Forest is a photographic interpretation of Atlanta's celebrated old-growth forest created by Atlanta-based photographer Peter Essek. When I spoke to Essek last year, he first explained the origin of the Fernbank Forest Project. I received a commission from Fernbank Forest through the generosity of a donation from my gallery. And he gave a donation for me to photograph the forest while it was being restored. 
uh, and was opened back into the public. As far as the very beginning of the forest, there was a man, Z.D. Harrison, who was uh, a clerk on the Georgia Supreme Court, and he was the first owner of the property. And his daughter, Emily Harrison, uh, lived on the property for most of her life. And she was the one who was responsible for starting Fernbank Museum and for protecting the forest. In what ways was Emily Harrison extraordinary in her academic achievements as well as her philosophy of education? Yeah, she was a real visionary, an environmentalist way ahead of her time. And she had a, an idea called the classroom in the woods. And uh, she had studied about how it was good for school children to spend time in nature. And so that was her dream, was to have Fernbank be preserved as an old growth forest and also be a place where students and children could go. And this has proven out over time uh, with a lot of studies recently that school children do uh, calm, are more calm and they're uh, more happier when they spend time in uh, forest woodlands. She founded an out-of-door school in Sarasota, Florida and wanted to start a similar school here in 1908. What became of that? Well, she never realized that particular dream, but what she ended up doing was she got a, a nonprofit started, which was the Fernbank Museum. And there was a 48-year lease, which was given to the DeKalb County Schools. And uh, before she passed away uh, in the 1960s, she was able to realize that dream. And what happened was that it was used very well by uh, the DeKalb County Schools. Uh, but what happened over time was that a lot of invasive species came in and uh, the forest really needed to be maintained. And as, as a school district, they would take kids there, but they really didn't have the funds or expertise to do that. So that's what, in 2012, the Fernbank uh, Museum got the forest uh, back after the, this 48-year lease had expired. And they um, started the process of uh, taking out a lot of these invasive species that had been come in from the neighboring uh, homes and yards. Through what efforts did the forest remain intact? Well, the Fernbank Museum has spent over 10,000 hours, uh, person hours, uh, very carefully uh, restoring the forest and uh, one metaphor would be how you would restore a real um, famous painting uh, you have to very carefully take take out these invasive species but you have to leave and not touch all the wonderful native uh, flowers and vegetation so the the forest floor, when I first saw it in 2015, had a, a lot of English ivy and Chinese wisteria that was growing along uh, the bottom of the forest floor. And this, this was sort of choking out a lot of the native species. So this process that, that Fernbank has uh, committed to, uh, it's, it's a long-term project, it's very time-consuming, and uh, expensive at, at some levels, but they have done a great job and it is a, an ongoing project because these seeds continue to blow in and, and never, sort of <laughs> never, never ending forever project, I guess. Mm. Would you describe your visit to what's 
mentioned in the book as the uncommodified part of Fernbank and the impact of that experience on you? Part of this commission, I was able to come and go into Fernbank Forest uh, whenever I wanted to. I spent a lot of time early in the mornings. Um, this old growth area is very special. It's a 65 acre section uh, that has never been logged or, or cut. And so you have these 300 year old trees along with small saplings as well. And uh, it's a functioning old growth forest. And that's what makes it very special to have a, uh, a forest of this quality right in a downtown location in the middle of a metropolitan. And you were first taken there by a ranger who described himself as the luckiest person in the world. I read that your father was a science teacher, Peter. How did his career influence your own? Well, he had a great intellectual curiosity and as a teacher, and he also uh, was an outdoors person. Um, our family, we grew, I grew up in the Southern California, and we spent a lot of time on the weekends and the summers. Uh, we were some of the original backpackers and hikers and joggers and skiers and all that kind of thing. So he, he is definitely, and uh, my mother is also interested in the same type of thing. So they both were a big influence on, on my appreciation of nature. Hmm. So how did you go from that first magical trip into the forest that's described to this beautiful book of photography? How do we get from there to here? <laughs> well, uh, I think you have to first spend some time. And when I first went there, if, if I'm very honest, I was looking, I was saying, wow, I, I don't know if I can really do a, some great pictures here. You know, I, a lot of nature photographers love to go to uh, the great national parks like the Yellowstone or Yosemite or down to Patagonia, these dramatic uh, mountains and rivers. And so when you look at Fernbank at first, you say, well, it's a, it's a beautiful forest, you know. And so it took me a little time, but I, I really sort of fell in love with, with uh, just the magical uh, lights and the different seasons and the fact that I was there often in this you know, beautiful setting just all by myself, you know, very early in the morning. So that's, that was what sort of led me to, to see that there was these different moods and the lights and the color and the sort of the, the cycles of the forest from the decay to the growth. Uh, and that's, that's what started, started to lead to uh, a larger project that ultimately became the book. Yes, and in fact, the series of fine art photographs are in the museum's collection. Yes, we did. Uh, when I originally had finished the uh, project, we had a, an exhibit at Fernbank Museum. And we, at that time, I had donated a portfolio of uh, around 40 images that are in the uh, collection, the permanent collection of Fernbank. Hmm. Beech leaf pine tree is the first photo we see. The tree trunk brought to mind Nolde's famous painting of the scream. And, and then when I saw the next photo, a two-page photo, forest and pond, I thought about 
George Surratt's pointillism, tiny dots conveying an image. And, and I stopped myself. I, I paused to remind myself of something quite basic, of course, that painters, painters strive to recreate nature. Here, you are capturing nature and uh, a reminder that is, it is in this pure context that we should experience and appreciate the natural world. Uh, yes, I, I have always believed that uh, nature has, especially uh, wilderness or undisturbed or untrammeled nature, uh, as a subject matter, just provides uh, unlimited opportunities for an artist. And uh, the examples that you mentioned were, in some ways, an artist maybe taking an aspect of nature and and you know um, just being inspired by it. And what I have done is just tried to to capture it uh, in its real. Uh, raw form, and, and it's, there is these very, very different uh, forms and designs uh, that that are all present in one individual forest. Yes, and clearly you can tell I'm more of an indoors person if my references are, are <laughs> hanging in museums. There are three subjects you present as collages. Why did you choose to display those images in that style? Well, I, I had originally sort of looked at one of them. It was sort of like 16 pictures of thumbnail, and you sort of originally, they always kind of sort of pick out the one that you think is the best one that's sort of the editing process uh, but when i looked at them uh one I, I i just couldn't find the one and then i started seeing that as a whole it actually worked together so in some ways um, I, it was a, a little bit of a metaphor maybe for how the forest works that you have individual trees and then you have a whole forest and that each of the the trees work together. Um, the pictures in a collage, what I found is you, you look at the one individual picture and you'll see how it relates to the one next to it. And then when you look, you kind of go back a little farther, you kind of see them all together as an individual picture. And so that's sort of just different ways of seeing and trying to think of uh, a more, I guess a contemporary or a more personal vision of how how to represent some of the feelings that you get uh, in a place like Fernbank. It's very effective. The wildlife pictures are wonderful. A barred owl, blue jays, a green frog. 2016 is one of my favorites. Were these subjects more difficult to capture? I mean, they move around. Yeah, they they are. Um, the green frog. There, there's a group uh, from Fernbank Museum and some volunteers that uh, once a month, right at dusk, and I think it's like on a Wednesday evening, they go and they count all the amphibians. And amphibians are special because they're indicative of good water quality. And so if you have uh, like salamanders and frogs, then uh, that's really great for the water quality. And we we debated a little bit about the, the frog. Uh, Bill Bowling, the the editor, or the publisher at Fall Line, really liked that picture. He said it just made him smile every time he saw it. So that's why we ended up had to put that one in. Oh, he is wonderful. Great big eyes. Peter, would you talk about the last photograph of the book, why you chose to end with a sunrise over the Atlanta skyline? 
Well, that, that picture was taken with a drone and about, you know, partway through uh, doing this, these photographs, I realized that, you know, that I had a lot of really nice nature photos, but I really didn't show, you know, that it was an urban forest. And uh, that's part of the beauty of it. When you go in, in the firm bank, you sort of get into a different realm. Uh, but I, I had the idea of, you know, using a drone and I had learned to fly it. And so we decided we either had to put that picture as the first one or the last one and uh, decided that it would be sort of a, a neat surprise to see, see all of this, this beauty. And then at the end, you kind of see that, you know, not too far away is this downtown Atlanta and all of the, the big city. Were you using drones inside the Fernbank forest? I was, yeah. Actually, I, I, I did some. You can la launch, a few times I would launch from Clifton Avenue right there. And then sometimes I would, where the pond is, there's an opening. And so you can take pictures um, sort of inside the forest, a little higher up. But I think uh, most of the ones were above the canopy. And so there's a few pictures of the fall colors and that was just a whole different perspective that you couldn't get from the ground. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I've continued to fly drones and I, I'm a big fan of them as a, from a positive standpoint, as a tool for photographers, they just offer a whole different perspective. My goodness, I love thinking that they can be used for beauty and peace. Yeah. And not the original association we have with them. Yeah, I, I like that aspect too. There is an excellent essay Janice Ray provides in the book, and you wrote some haikus. Would you read your final haiku? Fusion of forest and city. Piedmont landscape of refuge and hope. Atlanta-based photographer Peter Essick from our conversation last year about his book, Fernbank Forest. You can hear the entire interview on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a lesson in American democracy with the Atlanta History Center. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people is the cornerstone of our democracy. The Atlanta History Center is hosting a new traveling exhibition, American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith, created by the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, the Atlanta History Center staff enhanced the show with local artifacts and documents. The exhibition examines the history of American government and how that system has been tested, improved, damaged, and repaired over time. Joining me now via Zoom is Michael Rose, Chief Mission Officer of the Atlanta History Center. Michael, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Why did you feel that now was a perfect time to host this show on democracy? Well, I think that right now there are a lot of questions about what democracy is and how it functions. It's very topical, that's certainly true. And I know that it 
in addition to the Atlanta History Center, a number of other institutions, uh, educational institutions, nonprofit museums, and historical agencies and others are all looking at the question of what is democracy? How does it function? How has it functioned? And what is its future? And I think that we, along with those others, are very interested in providing information to the public that will allow them to understand and educate themselves. And we look at it as a matter of history, a frame of reference. So how does the past inform the present and prepare us to move forward in the future? And democracy is not a given. Democracy is something that we all have to work at. And so it has changed in America. And as you mentioned in the introduction, it has uh, been challenged in the past and it has changed and recovered. And so again, there are a lot of questions about uh, what the future of democracy in America is going to be. Yeah. The subtitle of the exhibition is A Great Leap of Faith. Why was establishing democracy in the United States a leap of faith? Well, in one aspect, it was a leap of faith because we say Americans, they were colonials, they were British subjects. I think everyone has to understand that the formation of the United States from a series of colonial governments on the North American continent was not a given. They were loyal British subjects at that point in time, most were. How do you make a decision? What drives a public to make the decision to take up arms against their existing form of government? And so I think that that is in itself a leap of faith to make that decision to leave the form of government that you have experienced your whole life and attempt something new. And I think another aspect is the fact that what they were looking at was a republic, a democracy, a democratic republic, whatever term you want to, to use in describing the, the new nation. I think one thing that uh, is interesting is that James Madison, who is popularly known as the father of the Constitution, before the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, he spent the year prior to that studying his history, which is what we, we hope everyone will come here to do. But he was studying the history of democracies and republics, ancient and more modern, 16th and 17th century, but also ancient Greece and Roman and others that had attempted democracies and republics in the past. They all failed. So he was trying to understand how can you create this form of government to succeed where others had failed before. Would you talk about what this exhibition reveals as Georgia's role in the American Revolution? I think one of the interesting things about uh, Georgia and the American Revolution is Georgia was the last colony of the 13 to be founded and was founded relatively late compared to the others. So Georgia receives a, a charter in 1732, Virginia, it's been established and established an elected assembly by the people in the 17th century. So Georgia is formed in 1732. When you have the outbreak of the American Revolution, it's only less than 45 years later. So relatively speaking, it's the newest colony. And these are the most recent British subjects to establish a colony. So you think of it in terms of that decision to break from the British government for independence. These are some who are the most recent arrivals to the new world and have the probably, in many ways, the strongest ties in some aspect to Great Britain. And so I think it's a more difficult decision on their part. And I think that's evidenced in one way by the fact that the First Continental Congress did not have a representative from Georgia. And it wasn't until late in the Second Continental Congress that Georgia sent representatives to that event. So our state was strongly loyalist. It was, and it depended in many ways on the uh, British military as well. And so another thing that we touch on in the exhibition is uh, Georgia's relationship to the indigenous peoples of Georgia, the Muscogee and the Cherokee, 
And having been a more recently formed colony, that frontier with the indigenous peoples was not as settled as it was in other colonies. And so there was a greater aspect of needing the British military, that connection for the safety of the the frontier. And I think for historical reasons, equally important that the Muscogee and Cherokee people are included in this exhibition. Absolutely. And I think that, that one of the things that's important to remember about the Muscogee, commonly known as Creek, but the Muscogee and the Cherokee are still here in that aspect of they are in Oklahoma, but they have traditional ties to Georgia. And the fact that when we speak of the indigenous people of Georgia, we're not talking archaeology and anthropology because these are living people. Those nations still survive, and that's important to remember. Can you take us through the various sections of the exhibition and what is explored in American democracy? Well, there are five sections of the exhibition. Uh, the first one is, is essentially the founding of the nation. It's the explanation of that great leap of faith taken to establish the American uh, democracy. Uh, other sections include a section about the vote and the idea of who votes. It's uh, another section on the machinery of democracy, as, as it's called. And that is about campaigning and political parties. Another section is about beyond the ballot. And it's about how individuals can take part in government beyond the idea of voting, petitioning Congress, lobbying, protest, and marching. And certainly with the events of Black Lives Matter and and the protest that we saw last summer, that's a clear example that we have in the exhibit of the ability of the American people to impact their government through means other than than voting. Uh, The exhibition is not organized chronologically, it's organized by theme instead. And, and we hope that we'll have a greater impact with the visitor in seeing those different ideas or themes in American democracy presented as groups rather than spread out over time. Hmm. Among the rare artifacts on display are a Civil War absentee ballot and a possum teddy bear. How did you acquire the Civil War absentee ballot? And Michael, who knew? Well, there's a certain aspect of there's nothing new under the sun, right? right? And so the whole idea of absentee ballots right now is an issue in American democracy. But absentee ballots obviously are not new. And so we do have the soldiers fighting in the Civil War did vote and they had absentee ballots. And that's how that was done. And yes, we do have a Billy Possum, which is a essentially a teddy bear, but he's actually a possum. <laughs> so of course the teddy bear comes from Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, right? Right. Teddy Roosevelt was succeeded in office by another Republican, William Howard Taft, Billy Taft, as it would be. And so William Howard Taft came to Atlanta after his election, and he had a parade and all sorts of, you know, ceremonial events, one of which was a dinner at Piedmont Hotel in downtown Atlanta, which was, you know, at the time, one of the finest hotels in town. And so anyway, but there was a festive dinner for him, and he was served a local delicacy of some sort, which was barbecued possum, and oh so, served with a persimmon sauce. But anyway, so... Did he eat it? Do we know if we, he ate it? I think... I think he tasted it. I don't know how much. <laughs> I don't know how much of it he tried. Uh, so anyway, a, a teddy bear uh, was created, but it was a it was in the form of a possum, right? It was Billy Possum, and so we have that on view here at the Atlanta History Center as well. Interesting to see if that starts a new trend, Michael. <laughs> Up to what point in history does this show cover? Oh, well, it comes right up to the present. Ah. So we do have from last year's marches, Black Lives Matter, we do have uh, signage, handmade signs 
that were created for some of the protest marches here in Atlanta as part of our contemporary collecting efforts. So absolutely, it comes right up to the present. The writer and philosopher George Santayana said, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Why is it vital for Americans to learn about the history of our democracy, perhaps now more than ever? It's important to understand the events that we're living through today have a precedent in the past and understanding how those events in the past were handled and what the outcomes of those were can help guide us in making decisions today. The Atlanta History Center's Chief Mission Officer, Michael Rose. American Democracy, a Great Leap of Faith, will be on view through March 23rd, 2022. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., tubist and author Richard Antoine White tells us about his compelling new memoir, I'm Possible. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.